Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And today, uh, we begin our new study in the gospel according to Luke. This is Luke's account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, and so please open your Bibles and turn there to Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Luke is the third book of the New Testament. And Luke is actually the longest of the four gospel accounts that we have of Matthew and Mark, Luke and John. I think it's actually the longest book we have in the New Testament. And about half of the material in the book book of Luke is unique to Luke. It means it's not found anywhere else in any of the other gospels. We have the background of John the Baptist's parents, the conversion of Zacchaeus, a wee little man, the salvation of the thief on the cross, the, the parables of the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the road to Emmaus. If you don't know these passages that I'm referring to, that's okay, we will get there. But for those of us who do, these are all unique to the book of Luke. It actually took John MacArthur about 10 years to get through this book. I should take us a lot less than that. But this gospel account is filled with scripture that we can be very thankful for. It was a little bit more than seven years ago that we studied the Gospel of Mark, and and I thought that it would be good for us at this point to return to a narrative to follow the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. I mean, God's Word is God's Word, all of it, but I particularly, personally love coming back to these accounts. And so Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is our passage today, and, and I'll read that to you. And it says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us." just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can gather and and that we can worship and worship you now in the hearing of your word. And, And as we open our Bibles, Please give to us by the Holy Spirit a a certainty of these things that we are being taught, a a conviction of the truth. Please give to us eyes to see your beauty and and ears to hear your word and a heart that really believes it and actually believes in you. Help us to know more and more all the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. And we ask God, we beg God, that you would save this morning those who do not know you. uh, Only you can and that you would continue to save us who do know you. Only you can keep us close to you. We ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. While Luke may not be as familiar a name as so many of the other authors of the New Testament, Luke Luke actually writes about a third of the New Testament. He chronicles a 60-year period of time from the birth of John the Baptist through the life of Jesus Christ, culminating at his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And unlike other gospel writers who stop right there, Luke continues to write to describe this explosion of the early church in the book of Acts until the gospel finally reaches Rome, the epicenter of the ancient world. He chronicles six decades of history. A third of the New Testament is in Luke's handwriting. That is more than Peter, who was a disciple and an apostle. That is more than John, the beloved of the Lord, who'd always be sitting next to Jesus, even resting his head on his shoulder. Luke's contribution is about the same amount of text as Paul's contribution to the New Testament. 
a great missionary and church planner. And, and while we know much about these authors, we actually know very little of who Luke is. What can be found out about Luke is really encapsulated in three references in the New Testament. Colossians 4.14, Paul calls Luke there the beloved physician. And so we know that Luke is a doctor. Philemon, verse 23, Paul calls Luke my fellow worker. And so we know that he was Paul's missionary partner. And in 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that Paul writes before he passes into the next life, Paul writes there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. At the end of his own life, after years of self-sacrificing ministry, it was only Luke who stood by Paul's side in jail. Uh, Luke had been a missionary of the gospel even when others had turned away like Demas because he loved the world too much. And when the burden of the Great Commission required others of Paul's friends to serve elsewhere, Luke remained next to Paul to the very end. I mean, Luke is the kind of friend that you want. These are the friends that we should pray for, faithful to God and, and faithful to you in that order. Now, these kinds of people, if God gives even one of them to you, they are the highest kind of gift that God can give. If you have a friend like this, praise God, thank God for them, and thank them for them as well. And so what we have here in these few snapshots is a picture of Luke as a doctor, Luke as a Christian, Luke as a missionary, Luke as loved by Paul and faithful to the gospel and faithful to him. Luke is a Christian, not someone who walked an aisle and said a prayer and after a year or two left Christ and left the church when it wasn't as cool anymore. No, Luke possesses this saving faith, this persevering belief. This is true religion that he wanted to spend his efforts and his time making sure in his own writings that others would have a clearer picture of the Savior and of the church that he loved so much. This is a, a brief portrait of the man who writes about a third of the New Testament. But Luke is also a Gentile. And what that means is that he's not a Jewish person by birth or by race or by culture. His mastery of the Greek language is evident from the very opening verses. All four of these verses make one long sentence. He's, he's highly educated. And I think it's especially interesting to note this. Jesus' original disciples were Jewish fishermen and tax collectors and zealots who were very pro-Israel. And they were all from Podunk, Galilee, unsophisticated, uneducated, a motley group raised in homes where mom and dad would give to them a steady diet of the Old Testament. They grew up hearing about Abraham and Moses and, and David, and one day, a future son of David who is going to come. This was their very identity. We are waiting for a coming king. This is their culture. We are anticipating a Jewish Messiah to come and rescue us, and especially rescue us from all these foreigners, the Gentiles, rescue us from these bad guys. The key people in early Christianity were no-name fishermen from a tiny town waiting for a Jewish savior. Luke is none of these things. He isn't from Galilee. His parents were not religious in the Jewish sense. He didn't grow up hearing about the patriarchs and other stories like Noah and the flood and Daniel and the lion's den. None of that was a part of his upbringing. He's not Jewish. He's not a Galilean fisherman, neither was mom or dad. He wasn't raised in a spiritual home. Luke's track in life was entirely different. 
study hard, well-educated, becomes a doctor, and yet, when all is said and done, the real work of his life was to point people to Jesus the Christ. We have in Luke a Gentile physician with nothing to gain in this world if Christianity is true. And yet he ends up being best friends with a Christian missionary in jail. And he writes a detailed account of my Lord and my Savior. And it's in this account that we find so much emphasis on outsiders coming to Christ. We have women as prime examples of spiritual responsiveness and spiritual sensitivity in a culture that was thoroughly male-dominated. We find verses upon verses highlighting the fringe groups all coming to Jesus. I mean, Luke himself, he did not fit the mold, so to speak. And frankly, neither do half of us in this room. And yet he is a shining example of how Jesus Christ is for everyone. The Son of God is for all people. The gospel is for the entire world. And so Luke writes two books, two volumes, The Gospel According to Luke, which focuses on the life and the ministry of Jesus, and the book of Acts, which focuses on the first century church. It's a book about the church. Jesus and the church. Jesus and his bride. Jesus gathering his people to himself from all corners of the world. This is who Luke ultimately is. So much so that he doesn't even refer to himself by name at all in any of his writings. One third of the New Testament, he doesn't even write his name down one time. And I'm sure that uh, you've met those people who just have to put their title in their name. Oh, hey, Dan, that's Dr. Dan. They sign all their emails with all their accolades and degrees attached. And you know what? There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Sometimes that's important and pertinent information to know. But, but Luke here, he doesn't even write his name a single time because all of his attention is given to another. This is Christian humility. This is our, our author. This is who God shaped him to be. And that's who God is shaping us to be, brothers and sisters. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so introduction of our author aside, we come to our text in Luke in chapter 1 and verse 1. And again, uh, let me read these first two verses to you. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. In writing this account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, Luke has a lot of material to pull from. Many people tried to write something about Jesus because when Jesus came onto the scene, it was a big scene. Thousands followed him. The Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities had to figure out what to do with him because Jesus had become such a public figure, a force really, within the span of just three short years. This is prior to social media. I bet a million people in the first century saw Jesus with their very own eyes and witnessed his preaching, his power, his miracles, his death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus in the flesh 500 people saw that at the same time, and most of them were still alive to talk about it when Luke began to write his book. And so there remained this tremendous buzz about Jesus, and people were continuing to talk about him and sort through all the data. They're trying to process what it is that just happened, and they wanted to write about it. I think that one of the biggest misconceptions about Christianity is that it is a blind faith. 
that you just have to believe without reason, without data, without historical record. Just believe, even if you have to check your brain at the door. I better not ask too many questions, because if I dig too deep, it may come up empty. That somehow belief goes hand in hand with this lack of confidence. That faith is somehow inconsistent with truth or, or with thought or with actual history. The way that Luke opens up his gospel is actually an invitation for us to think upon the truth and to sort through the data and to weigh the information and to take an honest look at the historical account. Luke, in writing this book, spends hours upon hours sifting through mountains of information from key witnesses who were with Jesus from the very beginning and thousands of witnesses who could corroborate if what he was saying was true or not. Brothers and sisters, the, the Christian faith is built on facts, not conjecture. Gospel religion is founded upon verifiable and historical truth. J.C. Ryle, he writes this, Christianity is a religion built upon facts. Let us never lose sight of this. It came unto mankind at first in this shape. The first preachers did not go up and down the world proclaiming an elaborate artificial system of abstruse doctrines and deep philosophic principles. They made it their first business to tell men great plain facts. They went about telling a sin-laden world that the Son of God had come down to earth and lived for us and died for us and has risen again. The gospel at its first publication was far more simple than many make it today. It was neither more nor less than the history of Christ. The faith that we hold on to today is not a religious philosophy based on speculation or the ideas of a bunch of famous religious thinkers. It is not the invention of some ingenious mind that wanted to just put together a way of life. It is a matter of plain and simple historical fact concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What we believe is rooted in history. That's important for us to know. But this gospel account of Luke's is also, verse 1, about things that have been accomplished among us. That verb accomplished is a perfect passive for those of you who like grammar. The passive means that someone else accomplished these things, not us. They have been accomplished. And the perfect means that it was accomplished at some point in time, and the ramifications ripple outward into the future. And so this is not an account of what humanity can do or what we can accomplish. This is an account of what God himself has done and what he alone has accomplished. Now, as we continue to study this book, we're going to see Luke pull from the Old Testament. He's going to cite promises made centuries ago, prophecies made, all finding fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That what God accomplishes in the person of Jesus is not some aberration to the original plan. This is a, a fulfillment of all of human history. This is the accomplishment of the original plan. That everything Jesus does and who he is and what he accomplishes is in accordance with God's very own word. Every promise made finds fulfillment in him. The road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 27, Jesus there. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament is a book about Jesus prior to Jesus, so that when Jesus comes, we will know this is what God has been talking about all along. He is the fulfillment of God's word. Jesus is God's greatest accomplishment. Now, this is key because the Bible is not 
primarily, where can I find me in it? Preach to me about how to make closer friends or how to fix my marriage in five steps or less or how to raise kids that stay on the straight and narrow or how can I communicate in more, a, a more healthy way with my spouse? Count to 10 before you get angry. Where's the text that's going to make me stop drinking or, or prevent me from becoming a bitter person? The Bible's focus is not on, on this or that or, or this, as if the message is primarily about me and God is going to get me where I need to be to realize my potential. No, the focus of the Bible is on the glory of God, primarily in the person of Jesus Christ. And when he is centralized as, as a son in our universe, so to speak, then the desires of our souls begin to be calibrated rightly. And that is when those practical considerations begin to find their place as we gaze into the face of Jesus Christ. This is a record of what God has accomplished, not what we can accomplish. And God's accomplishments reach back to the very beginning of time in his perfect plan and his decree proven and promises made. And what he has accomplished also reaches forward, rippling out into bringing self-centered people, vain and sinful, what God has accomplished recalibrates us, makes us new again. We are born again, we heard last weekend, so that we might properly be him-centered and experience the joy he created us to have as walking rightly with our creator and our maker and our Lord and our God. The very opening verses of the book of Luke make God the main character, not us. Ligon Duncan, in his treatment of this text, he says this, God is not the best means for you to reach your ends. He is the chief end of man, and we live for his glory. Otherwise, we turn the Bible upside down. Luke is putting it right side back up for us by pointing us to what God is doing. Quotes J.I. Packer, the secret to soul-fattening Bible study is to ask first, what does this passage teach me about my God? And then only secondarily ask, okay, how then does that inform how I am going to live? And I think that that's right, that order. That's how Luke begins his book. God has accomplished. What can I learn about him first? And then how does that inform how I'm going to live my life? Maybe you want to write that down in your Bible, that week by week, when we come to this text, we're going to come with this kind of disposition. What does this teach me about who God is? And then how does that inform how I'm going to live for his glory in response to what he is and has accomplished? Now, one more thing quickly before we move on. In verse 2, Luke writes, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Luke here, he identifies his key sources. The people who had seen Jesus, had been with Jesus, and were ministers of God's word. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the concrete of the church, so to speak, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that we are not called to be innovative with the message in this sense. Luke is being careful to make sure that what he writes is linked to what was originally proclaimed. And much of the ministry of the temp contemporary church needs to have the same focus, that the faith we hold today is not some new faith, but the same old faith and the same old gospel and the same old word of God, the same old Jesus that the first century church held fast to. You know, the word tradition is almost a bad word among church growth proponents. 
It's as if they want to make this clean break from the past so that the church now can really take off. Luke's opening verses are completely the opposite. We want to be chained to the past, link by link throughout the centuries, that what we hold today is exactly to what the original church held to, that what we preach today is what they preached, that the truth they founded their lives upon is the same truth that we found our lives upon. You know, if you follow church history, uh, there are a variety of reformations that have occurred. Because over the years, the church somehow lets things get deformed, that they have to become reformed. They get deformed because churches begin to walk away from that apostolic teaching and take steps away from the Word of God. And they veer and steer so much from the scriptures that reformers have to come in and say, whoa, 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 let's go back to what we were from the beginning and reform what became deformed by going to the same old faith that was held by the original apostles as given to us in his word. You know, at our church, when we, when we try and stick as close to the text as we can, it, this is not some preference. And this is for survival. This is not some, I like chocolate, you like vanilla, and some churches like this, and some churches like that. We are simply trying to do what the first church did, Acts 2.42, to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so this is how Luke desires to report the truth, the, the historical data verified by eyewitness accounts of what God has accomplished according to his word and for his own glory, passed down by the ministers of the word so that we might build our lives upon what Christians for generations have built their lives upon. Verse 3 and 4, we continue, and, and we find that Luke is very straightforward about his purpose in writing, his aim. We read, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The purpose of the book of Luke is that believers might have certainty about the faith. The reason why Luke takes such great efforts to compile a narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is so that we might have confidence in what we believe. Luke's aim is that we live our lives, as we live our lives in discipleship to our Lord, we may have assurance that this is true. This is all true. And this is a right way to live. Luke here writes to a, a man named Theophilus who seemed to have been taught the truths of Christianity. He had heard the hubbub. He'd seen the impact that Jesus of Nazareth had, had upon so many people. And he puts himself in this position to learn about it all. But it seems that over the years, he comes to a point of wavering. He's evidently a man of social standing, most excellent Theophilus, his title. Sounds like he could lose a lot if he kept the faith. There was a lot of persecution of Christians in the first century. These were trying times. They were being put into jail. They were being whipped publicly, beaten. Some were killed. Paul's in prison. And after a while, fatigue can begin to set in. The hype of that new belief starts to settle. And then you still have to live your life. And you start to realize more and more that there was and there is this inherent risk of believing in Jesus Christ. And whenever there's risk, uh, what we believe is, is put to the test. Is this really worth the risk? I mean, is this really true? If I believe what I believe, my dating pool is going to get a whole lot smaller. If I hold fast to this gospel, it, it might cost me a few friends that aren't really about it. If I devote myself to Jesus Christ unapologetically, I, I may be shunned. I may be canceled. 
I might be passed up for a promotion. I might lose this. I might lose that. I might lose da 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 da. Especially this past year, a Barner survey says that 20% of churches might be shutting their doors because of the long-term effects of the lockdown. You can imagine the people in those churches. They, are the promises really true? Is it really worth it to, to bank my life on this? Is Christ coming? Is it imminent? Is that my ultimate reality for life today? It can be risky to hold fast to the faith too tightly. And one of the ways that we, we often respond to risk usually is to diversify ourselves. Don't put all your eggs into one basket. That's just too much risk. Put a little bit in this and a little bit in that. So if this one doesn't come through, you still have a lot of other things going for you. That wasn't the pattern in the first century. Uh, Paul was all in on Jesus. Sayonara career. Goodbye, colleagues who now want to kill me. The certainty that people like this had in Jesus Christ made them put everything in this one basket. Luke's very identity was not in being Dr. Luke. It wasn't in Gentile pride in a race-oriented first century, nor should it be ours in a race-oriented 21st century. All of these things to Luke were mere afterthoughts of the main thing that he put all his eggs into in Jesus Christ. And when your certainty wavers, you can't do that. When your certainty wavers, you try and find security and certainty in other things. A little bit in Jesus, a little bit in my peers and what they think about. A little bit in my bank account, because if these friends aren't my friends anymore, at least I got a lot of money. I can make more powerful peers. I'll put another egg in my career. Successful children, athletic children. One egg here, one egg there, one egg here, one egg there. So if this egg doesn't come through, I'll still be all good. You know, Christians, we have this tendency to diversify ourselves so much that if Jesus Christ were never to return, our lives would still look pretty all right anyway. This runs contrary to real Christianity. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul writes there, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That means if Christ is not really who he says he is and his hope is not going to come through, I've lived the most pitiful life I could have lived. There was no diversifying for Paul. The certainty of things hoped for made him go all in on Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we can't just be putting one foot in and keeping one foot out. You only do that kind of stuff when you're not certain. Pastor Chris, last Sunday, last weekend, defined faith for us as jumping from the 10th stair, remember that? Into the arms of the one you believe in and trust in. You define belief as resting your entire weight into something, sinking into the chair of truth, into the chair of faith. Imagine right now as you're sitting in your chair, try to only put 10% of your weight in that chair. You're going to burn out your legs. You're going to kill your back. But all of us will go only 10% in if we're not certain of what we're resting our weight in. If we're not sure that this is actually true, which is why Luke writes this to Theophilus. It's the reason why Luke writes this to us, why God writes this to us, that we might be certain of things that we have been taught because the solution to our own wavering, and we all do this from time to time, everyone wavers from time to time. The solution to those of us who have heard and should know better by now, who feel the pressure from the world, like Demas felt that pressure, and he loved the world more than Jesus, so he walked away from the faith. The solution to that danger is to present a detailed and orderly account of Jesus' very own life and his ministry to us. That's the solution to us as well. 
that whenever we feel ourselves beginning to waver, we must peer yet again into the face of Christ. That when we're, not, when we're just not feeling it, we must force ourselves to pick up our Bibles and turn to Jesus Christ. That the more we study our Lord and our Savior, the more certain we get, the more confidence we have, and the more and more we will not diversify. But I'm all in on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we come to the Lord's table on the second weekend of the month, this is really a visual of what Luke's gospel is all about. That the Son of God, God himself, conceived of a virgin, born in a manger, lived his entire life sinless and perfectly, something that no other person had ever done. None of us have been able to do. And he does all of that so that he might become the perfect sacrifice for sinners who deserve the wrath of God. That's us. He suffers upon the cross, not only in his body given for us physically, but in his very soul, that the Father who had loved him from eternity past would actually turn his face away and give him wrath instead. This is how Jesus dies. And yet he rises from the grave to prove that our penalty has been paid in full. The power of sin and death is defeated. Uh, this is love in the extreme. This is God's love for the people who least deserve it. And on the night before he's crucified, Jesus presents to us, to the church, the bread and the cup, my body, my blood. I want to give this to you right before I go to the cross. Partake of me. Because all of me is for you with the promise that I will not drink again until I drink it anew with you. Uh, this is love. This is certainty. This is absolute rock-hard security that he who lived for us and died for us and rose again will one day soon come back for us. He's coming. You can go all in on that. All your eggs in that basket, his kingdom is coming as well. And even as we come to the table today, it's a reassurance. This is a gift of grace. That as we take that bread in the cup, you can look around. I'm not in this by myself. When you feel weak and another strong, let's link arms together, brother and sister, because we're in this together. All our eggs, all together, we're all in on this. It's a gift of grace because this is one of the means by which because he knows how easy it is for us to waver. It's one of the means by which he gives us the assurance of the things that we've been taught. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. He could have gave us a million years. We'd never come up with the gospel. But you sent your son. You've given of yourself that he might die in our place, that he might rise from the grave, that he might ascend into heaven, that he will one day return for us, who you call in your word Christ's own bride. That's the amount of love you have for us in Jesus. We thank you for the gospel, God, and we ask, Lord, that more and more as our eyes get diverted and are tempted by chasing different things, would you center ourselves on the glory and beauty of your son, that we might live in belief and in faith and in love and in joy that really to lose our lives is to gain it, that to go all in on you is to build our house upon the rock. Would you make us more certain of your word, your truth, 
And would you let us sit in awe, stand in awe at everything you've accomplished for us, that we might live our lives in accordance with your word. We ask these things for your glory, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.